Welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco and drink. I'm Steve Ryder in the illustrious Lion's Den. Derek Fulmer is in the house. Steve Grison is in the house. We also have the other two hosts of the Holy Smokes Podcast here. Kay Hinamine, the Godfather, and Carl Muller. <laughs> Carl, you've got the microphone. And we have a very, 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 very special guest today. So I actually talked about flying down to Orlando in November. That's right. To come down to interview this guy. But it just so happens he's in town for the holidays. And so we got it now. I will be coming down to Orlando at some point in probably Q1 2020. But yeah. Yeah, we'll definitely look forward to hosting you down there. The Holy Smokes Orlando is an active and vital part of the Holy Smokes movement. And I think we're thrilled to have on the podcast today, Matt Hurd. Matt is the lead pastor at Northland Community Church in Orlando. And he's also the founder and principal of Thrive, a ministry dedicated to bringing people into fully alive Christianity. And Matt, we're just super excited you're here. I got to ask you, what are you smoking? Well, first, this is astounding to be in the company of this group in the infamous <laughs> Lion's Den. I've been hearing about it for a long time. So now finally here and the residue, I'm sure will stick with me for a long time. <laughs> At least in your clothes. Yes. And, 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 uh, Steve, buddy, we are so grateful for your voice Thank for you. Holy Smokes. Thank you. I think we all kind of dream about having the voice that Steve has and that Carl has. <laughs> but well, you've got uh, a silky smooth voice yourself. I, it, the more I smoke, maybe the better it'll get. But <laughs> I mean, the first time that you and I met was with another podcast with John Ramstad. Yes, think. eternal I, I think leadership. We had met before, but it was eternal leadership. Just so impressed with the eternal leadership podcast and the voice yeah. you bring to that. I'm smoking a, you guys know I'm a big Padron guy, but Nicaraguan predominantly, but this is an Oliva Meliano nice. herb and the Siri 5, which oh, so smooth. I love. So it's awesome. It's That's awesome. great. That's a good one. Well, Matt, we'll All probably right. get... Before, before we get to that, though, what are you smoking? What am I smoking? Are you in between stuff? I'm in between right now. My fingers are empty at this point. Well, so uh, we'll have to fix we'll, that we'll while, get, while we're talking. That, okay, we'll get that fixed. One of the things that's really so exciting for me to have Matt on the podcast right now is that in many ways, I was introduced to Matt through the book Life with a Capital L that Matt wrote. And really, it's the core message of Thrive, ministry that really helps Christians come in contact with, with the life that Christ has for us. And Matt, I just want to take this moment uh, as friends and as co-workers to also say that book changed my life. It changed so many of the ways that I understood my faith. And I think it is so resonant within the culture of Holy Smokes to understand what life that Christ has for us is really all about. And it's not about the orthodoxy, but it's about energizing nature of being fully alive in Jesus. So again, I want to thank you for coming and thank you for giving us a little bit of insight. I want to just say too, Matt is one of the most unique individuals that I've ever met. Theologically, at the highest level of education and background, understands the scriptures and can preach like 
almost no one I've ever listened to in my life. But at the same time, somebody who has a rich and incredibly influential way of appreciating life. So maybe you can talk a little bit about some of the things that you brought into this discussion about life with a capital L, some of the ways that you've been able to appreciate wine and cigars and some of those things, some of the training that you've had on that. I think people would be fascinated to realize that somebody who can lead congregations in the word of God is also somebody who can teach us a whole lot about the good things in life that God has given us through the senses and through our aesthetic part of life. I appreciate that. Man, that's awesome. Well, this has been great. I've loved having this podcast with you guys. It's wonderful. That basically sums it up. And so you want to just <laughs> kind of close it down? Is that, are we done? Right, let's get I just think just that's an introduction, brother. <laughs> well, I mean, you mentioned a word, orthodoxy. It's a word that obviously G.K. Chesterton, his classic orthodoxy is huge. But spent some time with a guy named Francis Schaeffer long ago who talked about the importance of orthodoxy, but also the danger of dead orthodoxy. And Ooh. he was a man before his time in a lot of ways, but I think he was sensing what was happening in the church and culture and evangelicalism. And that was a phrase that lodged, I was in Waymo, Switzerland at Labrie there, lodged with me, but it gained momentum as I spent a lot more time on this planet and also within church circles, theological circles. And I think it's a pairing of orthodoxy and vibrancy that's at the heart of the gospel. Yes. And John talks about why he wrote his gospel at the end of John chapter 20, verse 31. Uh, you know, 21 is the epilogue where he's given the commissioning, but he summarizes it. He's basically given a rationale of why he included what he did in his gospel. And he said in verse 31, these things I've written that you may believe, use the word believe twice in two different ways, but two ways that are paired together that cannot be separated. He said that you may believe that in Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. Mm and that by believing you may have life in His name. And so the way I would parse that out is that first uh, reference to believing is orthodoxy of, let's make sure we have right belief in the person and work of Christ, what He came to do. But then there's an implication. A lot of times in church circles, we just focus on that orthodoxy aspect. Okay, have you believed in Jesus or not? Then once a person has, game over, let's move on and wait around till heaven. Yet John's equal passion was, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And that life in His name is vibrancy. And he came, and you know, he says it in John 10.10, the thief comes to steal, to kill and destroy, but I've come that you might have life, have it to the full. That's a shalom statement. It's a restorative statement. It's a statement of both orthodoxy and vibrancy. And I think there are a lot of people that grew up being preached, having orthodoxy preached to them or preached at them yeah. and signed the doctrinal statement. But we're left flapping in the wind when it comes to what's vibrancy look like and what is this life in His name? And it's not a feel-good, positive mental attitude and where you just kind of enjoy a sunset and move on. It's a deep, resounding, restorative vision statement of life in His name is why He came to restore us to what we originally intended for. So, and it's having both and, not one or the other. You can't bypass orthodoxy and get to vibrancy. 
Mm. But if you've got orthodoxy without vibrancy, it's not true orthodoxy. You know, we're missing it. And so it's both and. And I think that the churches focus so much on screaming at times orthodoxy at our culture, but we haven't modeled vibrancy. And now our bluff is being called. And the hope of the church, in America especially, but around the world, I think, is we've got to regain that footing regarding vibrancy. Not at the expense of orthodoxy, but letting the orthodoxy fuel our vibrancy. And vibrancy is something that pertains to all of life. And walking back, obviously we're still fallen, waiting on the magic kingdom's arrival, the new heaven and the new earth. But learning to figure out and parts that out. And I think that some... We were just talking about it right before we hit record here. Kay brought it up that it's some of it the heartbeat of Holy Smokes guys. And when I say guys, men and women paying attention, there's a ping that happens when we start engaging with the gospel in more of a holistic way. Yeah, this is Kay. You know, I'm just struck so much, Matt, by your message of vibrancy in that as I travel around the world and I, you know, in the blessing to be able to travel and meet men and women in different Holy Smokes chapters all over the world, that there are so many burnt out people that have tried to keep up with the orthodoxy and the behavior and the doing of being a Christian, that they've lost the joy. Mm. They've lost the peace, the shalom, as you said, the vibrancy, because it's not really talked about much in the church. It's not really preached about from the pulpit. It's not modeled. And the guys and gals are just burnt out of trying to get into that trail. I mean, could you kind of speak to that of kind of how did that evolve over time in the church that it became so structured and so, how do I phrase it? Just, you know, the doing rather than the being aspect. Well, that's a great question. Again, we partition or compartmentalize our engagement with the gospel to right belief doctrinal statements. I don't know. It's a great question in terms of where, what some of the roots of that, you know, back in the middle part, early middle part of the 20th century, there's a big debate, and that's putting it politely, within the church as liberalism was creeping in. And so orthodoxy became, appropriately so, fodder for discussions. Let's make sure we're not straying from orthodox Christianity, biblical Christianity. But we became so consumed with that that I think it robbed us of some of the energy that should be equally spent on the implications of the gospel. And, you know, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, the life in John 14, 6. No one comes to the Father but through me. We've used that verse as an apologetics verse, appropriately so, his exclusivity clause. No one comes to the Father except through me phenomenal and can't back away from that. Yet at the same time, the precursor to that to me is one of the most brilliant statements and life-giving statements, no pun intended, of what he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And so you go through churches, a lot of us have been in and out of church. And I tell you who gets this is the younger generation because they've seen or they've heard orthodoxy preach them, but they haven't seen vibrancy modeled. But to put it in the way truth and life context, there are way churches out there. Everything's on the right behavior. And of course, of course, behavior should be an implication of our embrace of the gospel. But 
You know, you move into it without it, that balance of way, truth, and life, and you move into ways that really aren't prescribed by Jesus, that are instead imposed by Christian subcultures. And that's where the legalism stuff gets birthed. Then there are other churches that are truth churches. And the leadership all have the equivalent, whether it's actual or not, of theological degrees, because that's so important. And absolutely, it's important. But they have the truth without the way or without the life. And the Trinity, not Trinity in a theological sense, but in terms of a logical sense of way, truth, and life, and embracing all three of those, essentially thinking of a tripod or thinking, you know, you've got to have all three or something's going to be amiss. And I think so often, especially within the church, tend to overemphasize way and truth at the expense of life. There are a lot of churches that are way and truth. Mm-hmm. Then there are churches out there that said, boy, they catch that and they've tried to be the life church, but they leave the way and truth aspects, you know, the orthodoxy out there. And they have to all be embraced together. And, you know, what Jesus says in John 6 is, you know, it's the Spirit who gives life. And so as the Holy Spirit begins to govern my humanity, it brings into balance, okay, it's the truth that sets me free. It's the way that of following Jesus that's absolutely vital. But then what happens in that is the life of Christ begins to come out in my humanity and my personality and yours and yours and yours and yours and yours. That brings a balance, yet that's more difficult. It's harder to quantify. Going back to the vibrant, the orthodox vibrancy, part A, part B is sometimes referred to. Part A, believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Part B, and that by believing you may have life in His name. When we tend to just focus on part A, it's easier. Because mm-hmm. have I believed in Jesus Messiah or not? And a lot of ministries are focused on part A, orthodoxy, because at the end of the year, how many people trusted Jesus Messiah. Well, how do you quantify life in His name? That's right. And that's when it begins. But that's where the beauty of relating with Him in an intimate way. The only time Jesus ever defines eternal life is in John 17 when He says, and this is eternal life in His high priestly prayer, that they may know you and the one whom you sent. So there's an intimacy that pervades all of my life, not just between 11 and 12 on a Sunday morning. And that intimacy should change the way I do my vocation, I do my recreation, do my relationships, I do my grieving, I do my eating and drinking all to the glory of God. So, Mm. you know, I grew up in Alabama, so I don't know, they have a little saying there, am I scratching where you're itching? So, I don't know if I'm scratching where you're itching when I say that. How did you come to this place? I mean, you went to RTS, you're Wheaton, you've ministered at Moody, which are kind of way in truth kind of streams, so mm-hmm. to speak. I mean, obviously we, we're all theologically right on the same page with that. But this winsomeness, this, this embracing of the vibrancy, what kind of led you in that journey, Matt? You know, when I was in college, I left after my sophomore year and spent a couple of years in Europe. And I'd grown up in the church, but... There wasn't a vibrancy there. There wasn't a connection of, okay, what's the so what of the gospel? You know, the value proposition, if you will, of the gospel was uh, cordoned off to forgiveness of sins and assurance of heaven. Both, (laughs) absolutely, yeah, but both of those are front and center part of the gospel. At the same time, 
I'll come back to that question, but it's also a lot of the younger people, their peers and a lot of our peers, how many people wake up in the morning in our culture saying, how do I find forgiveness for my sins and how do I get to heaven? Very few people are asking that question. Yet they are asking, how can I fulfill who I am as a human being and see that come to fruition? And I was sensing that, but I wasn't asking those questions. Part of the time that I spent over in Europe, I spent with a group called Torchbearers, Cape and Ray Bible School, and I still teach it a lot of those in Europe. Uh, a guy named Major Ian Thomas wrote a book called The Saving Life of Christ. And it was a major in the British Army, and Americans would call it a castle, but at this townhouse country home up in Lancashire. And they've turned it into a Bible school. But it was his book that introduced a number of questions to me. I was, you know, statements like Paul makes when he says, we are saved by Christ's life. His death is critical, but we're also saved by his life. What does that mean? And I think those are some of the seeds planted. Then I got very involved, obviously, in church culture and doing church. But that was in the background. And always I'm very practical. And so what's the so what of the gospel and engaging an authentic dialogue with people. And it kept coming back to there's something that we're missing regarding the relevance of the gospel between that moment of conversion when I'm forgiven of my sins and the moment that we die and we are ushered into that precursor of the new heaven and the new earth. And so those seeds planted, but really starting to say, what is it that the gospel addresses in my longing as a human being? And as my boys were growing up, wanting to make sure that we had authentic dialogue and them understanding to be, you know, those phrases like being a good Christian, you know, those things drive me bananas. You know, what does that look? Because Jesus isn't interested in making us good Christians. He's interested in making us healthy humans to the glory of God. You know, the famous quote that Irenaeus, who was discipled by Polycarp, who was discipled by John. So this is two generations away, but he's the guy that said, the glory of God is man fully alive. And so that Ooh. kind of bubbling around. Ooh. And what would we say? The glory of God is somebody who believes in Jesus the Messiah and engages in discipleship. And I'm a big discipleship guy, but I make some people uncomfortable. I say, I don't know that Jesus's ultimate mission was making disciples. And people think, okay, there's the heresy starting right away. Well, I'm not sure that it's, it's radical at all. He says, I think the discipleship is his method. Yes. But the goal is, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. How does that happen in discipleship in the context of incarnational engagement with the gospel? And so you're discipling in the context of community. But seeing that, okay, as a healthy disciple, somebody that's got X number of verses memorized, shares their faith X number of times in a year, and goes to church regularly. All of that's true, yes. But let's keep digging down to what's the ultimate aim that Jesus has. And it's a cosmic agenda of restoring what was good. And his statements and his mission was calling people to radical. You know, you give up your life and you find my life. But my life is what you're ultimately longing for. So Matt, you go to Europe, but really what kind of a home did you grow up in, in Alabama? That set that foundation that ultimately took you to the trajectory to go to Europe and then 
where you've been since. Yeah, I grew up in the South in a Southern Baptist culture, so great orthodoxy. Lots of emphasis on trusting Jesus as Messiah, as Savior. But I was noticing that a lot of people define their Christianity more by what they didn't do than by what they did. Mm. And more by who they weren't than who they were. And the... Which really still is a problem today with the church, overall. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it really is. I mean, I know some, I know a little bit of your story from our conversations, but the legalism that can choke people to death, which is way getting off the plantation, you know, running off the rails without that balance of truth and life companioning it. And so I'm a skeptic probably by nature. And so it's saying, really, Jesus's goal is just about getting us to heaven. His goal is about restoring the cosmos to the Father's glory. But the epicenter of that are the broken image bearers, which is all of us. And what's it mean to be restored as an image bearer to what he originally intended? So it's asking those questions, engaging in these kind of discussions, and let's flesh this out. But my sons were the ultimate accountability because all of a sudden they're growing up, they're PK. Now, I never made a big deal of that. My oldest son didn't know what a PK was until he was about the 10th grade. Somebody asked me, he said, what's a PK, meaning preacher's kid? And he said, I don't know. I've never heard that before. But really trying to go past the, hey, I want you to engage with the gospel as a preacher's kid, but as a human being, a man that's been shaped by God and has a target on him. And that's with the furious longing of God, as Brendan Manning would refer to it as, where he's wanting to restore us to himself. And that breathe life, like Ezekiel 36 and 37, where the Messianic prophecy, the Valley of Dry Bones, that's one of the greatest images that were given in Scripture of the Messiah's role, him coming to this valley of dry bones that are these human beings that are dead in their trespasses and sins, still capable of laughter and creativity and ingenuity and love and tenderness, but also capable of great evil and saying, I want to breathe in. With his, you see the Spirit bringing life to this valley of dry bones and replacing hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. And so it was in the context of journeying with my sons when they were very young, I started to awaken regarding the issue of the heart. Mm. You know, and you see that so much in Scripture. But we tend to be more just mind without heart. It, again, it's both. But mind is very, very important when it comes to orthodoxy. But if I only am applying my mind to the life, the vibrancy, I'm going to miss it. Vibrancy is a heart word. And we're, you know, above all else, guard your heart. It's the wellspring of life. And so it's seeing them and wanting their BS detector to be finely tuned as mine is and say, let's get past the pad answers. And what are the implications of the gospel on a daily basis? So how'd you meet your wife? Met at Wheaton College. I had noticed her. There was one day, Wheaton is this beautiful campus. You've got all of these sidewalks. When classes are being transferred from one session to the next, in between classes, the sidewalks are full. But during class, if you're going somewhere, not a whole lot of people out there. And one day, she and I met two or three times on a sidewalk. I said hello. And I saw her outside the library. 
There should be a plaque right out there. But <laughs> of course, she doesn't remember this. But I finally stopped, said, you know what? If I'm going to see you this much, I need to at least know your name. How about that? Was that smooth or what? So uh, <laughs> it definitely wasn't that smooth because she doesn't remember it. But that's where we met. <laughs> Where'd you go after school? So I actually started pastoring. I was going to be a lawyer. Really? So, uh, yeah, I was in pre-law. I would want to do corporate law. That's from my dad's background, an amazing, godly man, and also a phenomenal businessman and corporate leader. So I've met a number of people through his network. But I grew up in a little town called Monroeville, Alabama. Which and, is where? Uh, it's, in, it's in L.A., but that's lower Alabama. So it, uh, Monroeville's claim to fame is it's the hometown of Harper Lee. Okay. Uh, to Kill a Mockingbird. Yep. And so yep. Nell would spend half her time there. But it, So it's a small, sleepy southern town, but Dad was part of a company called VF, Vanity Fair, but their corporate headquarters were in Reading, Pennsylvania. Their design offices were on Madison Avenue because Vanity Fair, women's lingerie, sleepwear, uh, VF also, Van Heusen shirts, Lee jeans, big okay. textile. Okay. So corporate headquarters, Reading, Pennsylvania, design headquarters were Madison Avenue, but their production headquarters were in Southern Alabama and Monroe, because back then that was where the cheap labor was. Yeah. You know, we've now yeah. taken it outside United the States. U.S. But so their cutting plants, their dyeing plants were all down in Southern Alabama. But in Monroeville, they had a corporate airstrip that VF built, and that's where the company jets or planes would come in. And these guys would come down there, and they didn't want to stay in the little motel in Monroeville, or a couple of them. So they had a, built a guest house. The guys wanted to play golf, so they built a golf club there. So it was this <laughs> two worlds of rural Alabama, which is just great. Blue-collar, down-to-earth. Down yeah, community and corporate Americans. So I was a bridge between those, but a lot of the execs that would come to our home for dinner number of them were lawyers and so I'd play pool with them before dinner and so that's what I want to do so for two years in fact when I went over to Europe I was still planning to be an attorney yeah mm. but it was during that time sensing vocationally I needed to make a switch mm. and What's, not what was going on in your life that kind of prompted that pull to ministry versus being a corporate attorney well I would say every one of us if we're followers of Jesus, we have full-time ministry. You'll yes. never hear yeah. me use the phrase full-time ministry related to pastors and missionaries. I would refer to that as vocational ministry. So for my vocation, I do ministry that is within the church. But you've got a full-time, every one of us has a full-time ministry. And so pairing what was going on in my heart with some of my skills, some of the aptitudes that I have, some of the hunger points that I had, really wanting to get into theology and the scriptures and seeing mm. God use my communication ability and leadership abilities in ministry context. So that so did your, was your time in Europe kind of what planted that seed mm -hmm. and started to mm -hmm. kind of yep. shift your trajectory? Yep. And I was started to be asked to speak at different things over in Europe and and I loved being able to say, yeah, but this is not my gig's law, because I felt like that was a bailout. And if I screwed up in a sermon or something, I could always say, well, this isn't my job. <laughs> and finally, it was one of these, there's a place actually at Capron Ray, 
there's a tower in the middle of the country home and there's a water, that's where the water was stored. And I'd go up there early in the morning or late in the afternoon just for some quiet and prayer. And it was one of those moments that, okay, are you going to be all in with this vocational expression, Matt, or not? Are you going to do it on the side? Wow. And mm. so there was a distinct point. And when I came back, I found out about Wheaton while I was over in Europe. Mm. And the uh, Jim Elliott, the Nate Saint, and the missionaries who were martyred, and the Billy Graham aspect. And so I applied while I was over in Europe. Actually, I was living in Sweden at the time and had to find an English Remember typewriters? Yes. That's an ancient artifact, archaeological artifact. So I <laughs> uh, applied from over there and then went to Wheaton and still did not major in Bible or theology there. I studied a lot, did all my electives, but I majored in social science because even then I wouldn't have been able to articulate it like I would now. But even then, I sense if I'm going to engage with the gospel holistically, I want to have a broader Ooh. perspective Ooh. than just Bible. So let's look Ooh. at the social sciences. So philosophy, sociology, psychology. Ooh. And that's the admirable way to put it. The other is I'm a jack of many trades and master at nine and social science major was a great way to go. <laughs> a great, <laughs> great, great path. To well, take Matt, you know, that. since I've known you, I've just been so blessed. And one, I think you're one of the most articulate communicators of the good news of Jesus, which goes so far beyond the orthodoxy, you got that totally grounded, you articulate that well, but then the winsomeness of the life that is abundant in Christ. Mm. And you're able to just articulate that so beautifully. And I would consider you probably one of the top, you know, at least 10 in the world, at least, and I've traveled quite a bit, preachers of the gospel, as well as the full gospel. Mm. This is what, you know, I would articulate it as a Pentecostal charismatic, you know, of that abundant life sure. that we have. And I look at the stories of Jesus of, yes, he spoke the truth, but he also lived out a truth that was winsome. And when I think about you, Matt, and, you know, some of us has had the privilege and I hope some, many more will, and I'm sure they will because of your hospitality and your graciousness of you and your wife, of to sit at the table with you and to have a meal of that full spectrum of the winsomeness that you bring. People want to be with you because of the life that you bring, which is Jesus in and through you, the image bearer, right? That we are the images of Christ. And also the other thing, I'll just brag about you here for a second, is that... Well, I'm going to run out of money here. I'm feeding I, you I, these $10 bills. No, $10 and cigars. I, and, uh, yeah. $10 cigars. <laughs> <laughs> is that you're both right and left brain. In the times that I've seen you share and articulate things and stories of who Jesus was and the good news... This is so holistic. I mean, you're you're not only a second level degree Somalia. You can only go to three levels, which you kind of picked up. And I'd love to hear that story about you. But then also you're artistic. I mean, you share a little bit about what you're doing with Mako, and you know the whole arts space. Mm -hmm. That is, mm -hmm. I mean, God created all those beautiful things for us to enjoy. Mm. And I think as followers of Jesus, we have sort of turned that off. You know. Some have even, in some circles of Christianity, said that that's evil. We shouldn't be involved in that space. And we've abdicated that space. Or when thought it, about it from a purely, you know, it's a better way to manage our money to have a warehouse for a church and to make it very plain and, mm. you know, to be good stewards of our money in that way, the money that we're getting, yeah. is, you know, to not think about having nice art on the walls and that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. 
goodness, what's the statement that people have made about long ago that was the church that saved art and out of the dark ages? But could it be that in this season, art might be instrumental in saving the church? And because that brings in the fully orbed aspect. I mean, what's essential? Isaac Dyson, out of Africa, author, wrote that classic Babette's Feast. And it's set in this little fishing village in Norway and this religious sect. They dress drably in gray. The only thing that they eat are just some minimal cod and ale, bread and ale soup type stuff. And these two sisters who were the daughters of the founder of the sect, and the sect was dying. It was now down to 10 to 20 people because of their take on life, their take on Christianity. And it was all about orthodoxy, no vibrancy. And in the middle of the night, a stormy night, this woman knocks on their door in the middle of this rainstorm, and she almost collapses. She has a letter that she gives to the sisters. And at this time, their father has died, and they're carrying on the tradition and watching this community die. And it was a letter of introduction from an opera singer, Monsieur Papin, from Paris, that had visited there years before. And actually, it had a crush on one of the daughters, and the father said, no way. You're not going to marry anybody that's that worldly. Well, there was a revolution going on, and her husband had been killed. I think one of her sons had been killed. She had escaped with her life, and Papang had written this letter of introduction, please take her in. And they're looking at her, and at the last line of his letter, it was almost an, oh, by the way, Babette can cook. And they're saying, well... We don't need a cook. We don't need a housekeeper. But at the same time, maybe our duty is to at least take her in for time. But they prescribed for her what she was supposed to do and what she could cook. And she could not cook anything but what they were already used to cooking. But she, over time, won them over and still wasn't allowed to cook anything else. But she got great deals, did all she could to make it a healthier environment and was there 12 years And what no one knew is that she had a lottery ticket that was automatically renewed by a friend. And 12 years after she had been with them, uh, she receives word that she's won the lottery. And so they say, well, you'd be leaving this. She said, well, what I would really like to do is your father's 100th birthday anniversary is coming up in December. This was in September. I would really like to cook a meal for you, a proper meal that would enable you to celebrate and be appropriate. He said, I don't know, but finally they succumbed and said, okay, having no idea what they were signed up for. And October, she leaves to head up to one of the port cities, and she's made some arrangements with another relative and starts getting these shipments in. And so she went up to procure all of that and then came back. And then over the next few weeks, these different things would be shipped in crates of wine, some quail, live quail and pens and some china and so forth. And a turtle, several turtles, live turtles. And the sisters are freaking out. And so they go to the religious community and say, we have done an awful thing. We agreed to let this woman cook a dinner for us for our father's hundredth birthday. 
but now we're thinking that we've made a mistake. And they said, well, you know what? The Christian thing to do is we still have to go through with this. Play it out. But they made this pact. We're not going to enjoy this meal. And so the time for the dinner comes and there's a guest that was, he was kind of the apple with all the oranges and he was the grandson actually of one of the members of the sect, one of the oldest women. And she was decrepit, failing in health. And so she said, can I come, but I need to bring my son with me. And by now he's a general. And so he shows up, he's not a believer, but he sits down to this meal that these courses and he starts recognizing and he had been stationed in Paris for a while and he's now part of the upper echelon. He had married a royalty from Scandinavia and he starts paying attention to what's going on. And you know, they'll bring up, what is this? Maybe it's some kind of lemonade and he says, lemonade, this is an 1860 Vuv Clicquot, one of the great champagnes. And then several of them, he starts identifying. Kayan sarcophage, a dish that was served. And he says, I haven't had a meal like this and since I was at the greatest restaurant in Paris. But over the course of the meal, they start loosening up a little bit. They start engaging with the beauty, this religious group. And at the end of the meal, the general stands up and says, what this meal is about is grace. And infinite grace from God is not something that, and he's not a theologian, not even a believer, but he was the one that got the grace of the meal. And at the end, I'm obviously given fast forwarding through it all, at the end, you know, wounds had been healed, rifts had been healed in this small little community of a dozen people. They still had church conflict. And, uh, but they started healing those relationships. They gathered out and it was beginning to snow, held hands in a circle and danced. Hmm. And the sisters come in and say, thank you, I guess you'll be leaving now. And she said, no. And they said, why? And she said, because I've spent all my money on this meal. And they said, it was 10,000 francs. How could you spend 10,000 francs? And she says, well, I was the chef at the restaurant that the general was referring to. And a meal for 12 people at my restaurant would have cost 10,000 francs. I say all of that, it's a description of we have partitioned the gospel and those people had engaged with the partitioned gospel and they had not engaged with the beauty. They had engaged with the way and the truth, but not the life. They engaged with the orthodoxy, but not the vibrancy and they were dying. And it's something that I think we all have a sense. Does the gospel have anything to do with us sitting around and smoking an exquisite cigar or great beverages that would accompany the cigar, whatever your favorites are? Is this theological, what we're doing right now? And absolutely it is, because theology has everything to do with us being restored humans. But that sect would have said, no, we're not supposed to be fully human. We're supposed to be followers of Jesus. And uh, an associate of Schaefer's, a guy named Hans Ruckmacher, said, Jesus didn't come to make us Christian. He came to make us fully human. And I think we're paying attention to that in this community that we're calling Holy Smokes. You know, Matt, I love Babette's Feast, and I read it often, because I think there's so many parallels to the fact that in the church today, not only here in the United States, but abroad as well, we're in that 100-year anniversary, uh, you know, and yet we have, good. Yeah. And we have this gift of a woman that has not 
ever been recognized or released fully into the gift that she could bring to the community. Mm-hmm. But we're locked into our traditions. We're locked into the way it's always been. And the church is dying around us. It's diminishing. Yeah. We're not even getting the second and third generations in. Yet we have this gift, which is Jesus. Yeah. But we're prescribing to Jesus. Yeah. Like they were prescribing cook, cook, the Babette. Cook the broth. You only do this. Yeah. And, you know, that the word that Jesus talks about being that you would have life to the full is a Greek word, perisuo. Okay. And it's also in Ephesians 1, but it, where he's lavished his grace. It's abundance. It's extravagance. And we struggle with extravagance. God's love for us is not doled out. It's extravagantly lavished on us that we have to steward and respond to. But something about what you said, we're prescribing for Jesus instead of letting him prescribe for us what his intentions are from a gospel standpoint. We put him in a box, right? Yeah. In our own parameters of our mindsets or the way our worldview is of what it should be or our mindset of what church should look like, and yet it's dying around us and atrophying. I think that's part of the winsomeness in some ways of Holy Smokes and other groups that are like us, that it attracts people who are burnt out. They see the not the depravity, but the, the hollowness yeah. of the way and the truth in its extremes. Uh-huh. You know? I uh-huh. mean, we love the Orthodox. We love the fact of what the gospel is, but we don't know. There's this unknowingness, right? We don't know what it looks like. I mean, what would you say to the individual who's saying, you know, I'm just so burnt out or I feel so empty right now. And I know the way that you, I grew up in that church or I am part of that church or that's all I know. How do I embrace that life abundant? You know, I think it's letting Jesus dictate what the gospel is instead of our Christian subcultures. And I mean, I'll speak about this with college students some and just about every time one of these kids will come up with tears and say, I'm just about ready to leave the church because I grew up in a way church or way in truth church. But how can I find a way true in life church? And I said, you be that. You know, start incrementally paying attention to the full-orbed aspect of what the gospel is. I mean, what does it look like on a daily basis? It's saying, okay, what is it that Jesus came to do? And it was not just his ideology or his morality. It was his vibrancy that drew people. True. And the most brilliant ideology, I mean, brilliant, mine, morality, Sermon on the Mount, greatest moral treatise in history, but people were leaving because Jesus was raising the bar to radical discipleship that is radical followership of saying, I want to let you dictate the cadence of my life. And people were leaving. And people say, well, there you go, because you have to deny your humanity. No, we deny our flesh. But the humanity, if we say our humanity is not good, then we've got a problem with the full humanity of Jesus. And so Jesus was the most fully alive person to walk on the face of this planet since Adam and Eve before the fall. And of course, his was trumped up also because he's God incarnate. But so what did it look like as he was going, what was drawn? You know, when everybody's walking away, Jesus says, you guys are going to leave too. And what did Peter say? Where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of life. life. And so on a daily basis, I have a checklist that I'm not meaning it to be trivial at all, but I've it's a way for me to remember it in kind of the ABCs of being fully alive. And 10 letters, there's more, but it's just rattling through them. 
And I can remember them because it's A, B, C, D. But on a daily basis, if I'm going to move into this day in my work or if I'm going hunting or if I'm going to be on the golf course or head to a funeral or at the end of the day, was I fully alive? A, B, C. A, did I live with a sense of awe, all of life worship? B, did I authentically engage with brokenness, with the hope of the gospel? C, did I embrace my own creativity? Some of us are creative with structure. Some of us are creative. I'm not referring to just art and canvas, yeah. but all of life. D, mm -hmm. depth. Fully alive people are deep people. We don't look at just what's happening, but why it's happening. What's deeply rooted in the Word of God, but letting the Word of God not just inform our orthodoxy, but the way we live as human beings. So that's A, B, C, D, E, engagement. Am I engaging my culture in a life-giving way, my community? Am I engaging people with the gospel, evangelism? Yes. F, fellowship, authentic community. G, generosity. Am I being a conduit of what God's pouring into me and giving to other people? H, am I living with heart? How many verses in Scripture are referring to? It's with your heart that you believe. Wow. It's not just with your mind that you sign a doctrinal set. Heart is not emotion. It's where my mind, my emotions, and will are all engaged. I, intimacy, am I walking intimately with the Father and with Jesus on a daily basis? You know, this is eternal life that you may know me. And J, journey, am I seeing today as part of this overall journey in which the cosmos has a destiny? And that destiny is aimed at Habakkuk 2.14, where the glory of the Lord will once again cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That was the case before the fall. That will be the case in the new heaven and the new earth. And when the angels proclaim glory to God in the highest, it's not, we've Christianized that word. Well, glory, and we've just used it. No, glory, it's a journey word. It's a destiny word. Mm. It's the kabod of God. It's His supremacy, His sufficiency, His self-existence, His beauty, His transcendence. But understanding that the, uh, what Spurgeon say, tonight I shall smoke a cigar to the glory of God. He embraced and, it. You know, what's Paul say? Whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. It's not just whether you serve in a Sunday school class, you evangelize. Everything is to the glory of God. So, my quick way of saying what's fully alive look like I would describe in those 10 words A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J. And no, that's not in the book. It's kind of what I have worked on since. But it's from the principles in the book Life with a Capital L. You know, we've almost made the life of a Christian almost a binary way of Gnosticism. You know, there's like certain ways of humanity and there's certain ways of being Christian. We've sort of compartmentalized our Christian walk in kind of two ways, you know. Uh -huh. We live out our life and then there's the Christian aspect, you know, and, and the spiritual side. And if you move into the human aspects of, say, enjoying life or, having a great cigar or a drink or loving art or loving a great song, even it might be, you know, headbanger music or whatever it sure. is, you know, it, we don't say, oh, that's evil, you mm -hmm. know, we can't get into that or, but yet God created us to be creative beings as well and spiritual ones as well. And it's just, it's just amazing how church we've done it, but that's kind of a commentary. Hey, no, but that's spot on because we see those things at best is ancillary. Right. But at worst, is evil. Is you know? evil, yeah. And Hans Urs von Balthasar was an aesthetic theologian in the mid-20th century. And he did a lot of stuff on theological aesthetics. But one of the fascinating things that he wrote about was the transcendentals of goodness, truth, and beauty. Mm. 
that all of us, I mean, Plato, it goes way back. What makes a human being or what makes a civic or communal entity healthy and balanced is the presence of goodness, truth, and beauty. Yes. But what Balthazar said is we see beauty as, my word's not his, ancillary. It's the one that's optional. It's nice, but it's not necessary. You know, an analogy I would make is in city governments, they're going through budget cuts. Okay, we got to cut something. What are you going to cut? The arts. You're not going to cut goodness. Law enforcement stays there. Music You're not programs. Cut truth. Yeah. The educational system, we can't. But beauty, we'll let that one go. And Baltazar said, what we don't realize is that goodness, truth, and beauty are sisters. And when you exile beauty, she takes with her, her two sisters, goodness and truth, in an act of mysterious vengeance. And you're left with goodness is no longer good and truth is no longer true. And to me, that's part of the brilliance of Jesus' statement, I'm the way, the truth, and life. And I've never seen anything written on this. I'd like to do that at some point when I get some time. But the brilliant, because Jesus obviously is the author of the goodness, truth, and beauty, those philosophers as image bearers are picking up on this is how we're constructed as human beings. And I do a parallel to say within the church, going back to what you're talking about, so many times we say, you know, way, we got to get the behavior down. A biblical obedience, of course. The legalism, not so much, but we convolute all that. The truth, we've got to get the doctrine down. But the life, okay, this whole life thing that you Holy Smokes guys are trying to figure out, that's ancillary. That's not, might be nice at best, if not evil, but it's certainly not necessary. And now to bring the parallel of how I would describe it with Baltazar to say, do we not realize that way, truth, and life are sisters? And then if we exile life, she takes with her truth and way in an act of mysterious vengeance. Mm. And we're left with a way in the church that's not really the way of Jesus, which is that sect in Babette's Feast. That's right. We're left with the truth of Jesus that's no longer life-giving. It's just a cognitive exercise, which is how you have so many people in in theological institutions that are not even followers of Jesus anymore. And what would happen if we say, guys, again, going back to the tripod, they're all necessary. And this is not, I don't think what Holy Smokes is about and other groups and people that are paying attention to this, it's not ancillary. It's for the hope of the church and it's for the life of the world. And that's why Jesus came, is for the life of the world. Miroslav Volf and Matt Crossman just came out with a book just dealing with theology where the title of the book is For the Life of the World. And there was that great video series a number of years ago on the life of the world. But Miroslav is talking about in theology, we've lost touch with the purpose of our theology is for the life of the world. Yeah, It's not just for the, quote, orthodoxy of our theological subculture. And I don't know what the survey would be. How many guys do we have now in Holy Smokes? 25, 2,800, something like that? Something like that, yeah. Almost three How many guys, men and women, in that 2,800 would say, boy, the church has lost its way? We've become so focused on the maintaining of our institution and we've lost touch with the vibrancy of us being the body of Jesus on this planet. And I think that some of what brings us together is we all got a hunch that we've partitioned the gospel 
and life has been left in the wings at the expense of pursuing way and truth. And now all of a sudden, I mean, how's that working for us in this culture? That's right. Post-World War II, big orthodoxy, absolutely, evangelism. Mm -hmm. But have we gotten out of balance in embracing the wholeness of the gospel's agenda? So, Matt, what is the way ahead? I mean, I love how you broke it down as individuals. We can go through that A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J. As individuals, we can practice that. That's kind of a metric, internal metric, or a gauge of how we're doing and some guidelines of a vibrant life. And, of course, not neglecting time of the Word and praying. Those are so essential, basic. And then keeping to the theology and the orthodoxy of the gospel, you know, what Christ has given us. But what's your vision of what would be a vibrant church look like? (laughs) That's a great question. I think... If you were to poll our 2,800, a lot of them would say a healthy church looks like this. Yeah. I'm going to start this. I'm taking a flyer and we'll see if it works because I've not thought about this. But when we get together, Holy Smokes, when Holy Smokes guys get together, does all happen? I think we get together and say, how cool is that stuff about? There's worship that happens. Does brokenness happen? Yeah, we engage some of the deep conversations we've had over the brokenness, what we're going through. Creativity. Oh, my goodness. So, Steve, what's the most recent project that you're working on? All of a sudden, we're celebrating that creativity. Mm -hmm. The depth we start talking about. Mm -hmm. Substantive stuff. Yes. And the engagement aspect. We're engaging with each other, but... I don't know that it's rare that I'm together in a Holy Spokes context where we're not talking about engaging culture. Yes. And not just in a culture war sense, but in a culture care sense. That's, that's right. And F, fellowship. It's, Pretty obvious. I mean, yeah, we're doing that. The G, the generosity. Oh we start goodness. talking about being generous with our resources. Uh, in one another's lives. Yeah. Yeah. Not resources, not just financially, but all of who we are. Heart. Network connections, that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Heart wise, Arlene, my wife, a couple of nights ago, a few of us got together and she said, how was it? Of course, she asked me that the next morning because she was long asleep by the time I got home. But I said it was heart food. I think when we get together, we're sensing there's heart food that happens here. From an intimacy standpoint, it's horizontal and vertical intimacy, but it's all revolving around this relationship that we have with Jesus. And then the J is we've got a sense of being on the path together, on this journey together. So that's church. And the institutions are inevitable when you start getting people together regularly. But the institution always has to serve the ultimate goal. Its purpose cannot be the maintaining of our institution. And that's kind of the organic aspect of Holy Smokes, I think. It's where when we come up with having to do a constitution for Holy Smokes, we're going to be in trouble. You know? And 100% of the guys around this room will probably say, we got to come up with another Holy Smokes because this one is... I don't know. Is that scratching where you're itching on that? Yeah, absolutely, Matt. I think that was accurate in that it's almost on the behavioral side. It's it's so interesting when people ask and they say in these comments like, well, we just had church at Holy Smokes. Yeah. And I drill down and I say, well, what does that mean to you? For the most part, they say, I've experienced more life in that two hours with a bunch of guys smoking a stick because I'm real. Mm-hmm. I'm authentic. I'm safe. It's a place that they walk alongside of me with truth and life. Yeah. You know, and they speak truth with love. 
mm-hmm. that they're for me, not against me. I think one of the most powerful comments you ever made to me once, Matt, and I was going through a difficult time was you just gave me a hug and you said, I believe in you, mm. you know? Mm. Yeah. Did you screw up? Did you mess up? Yeah, absolutely. We all do. You know, the Bible says we all fall short of the glory mm-hmm. of God. And yet in this group of this Abdullah's cave, so to speak, you know, of all these guys all over the country, the world, men and women, especially men that are part of Holy Smokes, they're yearning for acceptance. Mm-hmm. And yet in that same journey, as you say in the J, we all are fellow journeys together. We're journeyers together yeah. in the acknowledgement that we're here for one another. There's not really a question of being against each other. It's that you're really walking and believing for one another. And that's the beauty of that. And so when I asked them, you know, well, what do you mean by church? They said, I don't get that at church, Uh which is a sad thing. And I think one of the encouragements that I would have for those listening is that we as Holy Smokes guys would be like the yeast of going back and being expressions of Christ fully live human as well as you know image bearers of yeah. Jesus uh, back in the church as well and not to give up on the bride the bride is there for us exactly. to love and care for as well now the question is the institutionalization of it right should some churches just go away you know oh. I mean just because it's an institution doesn't mean it should continue I mean I think that's a God question in some ways it's up to the Lord as to whether they should but to feed something as an institution because it's an institution is not what God called us to. Exactly. Yeah, it's, he called it's, us into a relationship with the bride. Exactly. It's tail and dog. Yeah. And we got to make sure that the institution is the tail being wagged by the dog as opposed to the other way around. And, and then, then you got the flip side, right? You got the way life churches that have thrown out orthodoxy altogether. Exactly. And you just go, I didn't hear about Jesus at all in that, that sermon. Right. Right. I mean, Jesus is not even mentioned. It's, all hope, it's all great, it's fantastic plan for you, it's the vibrancy of life, and yet at the same time, there's no mention of the fact that, you know, sometimes crap happens. Yep. How do you embrace that, like you said, in what was it, was it A, B, C, D, I forget which one it was, embracing crappy things? Brokenness. Brokenness, Yeah. because we're all broken. Yep. This is a broken world. But how do we be image bearers in the midst of that? You know, yes, it's through life, but it's also the truth of Jesus, of who he was. Yeah. And how do we, as image bearers, express Jesus in the midst of that as well? So yeah. I... Yeah, and that's so good, because I, I mean, there's the doing and the thinking. Yeah. You know, of the way and the truth, but there's the being yeah. that's the life. It's just, I mean, what's, when we light up, oh. you know, you've got 45 minutes minimum of imposed meditation and community. <laughs> and so... So we're a contemplative society. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we're here. And there's best things I did as the boys were growing up is we also have a fire pit on our deck. And there's never awkward silence. I don't know that I've ever had awkward silence. You know, with teenage boys, a fire, there's something primal about that. And you could just stare at the fire. And, but even if there's no fire, I've never had a moment of awkward silence in a Holy Smokes gathering. It's true. Because we're here and we're enjoying the stick. We're enjoying the time. We're enjoying being as well as thinking we're engaged. and talking about it. Yeah. 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 Fully present too, mm-hmm. which, you know, in our sort of our society and culture today where being present is so hard to do. Yeah. 
And that's yeah. the beauty of, I think, Holy Smokes in that we've created a space for the Holy Spirit to be invited and embraced. Love that. Absolutely. And I leave these times more fully alive. And it's, people say, no, no, the goal should not be fully alive. The goal should be like Jesus. <laughs> Last time I checked, Jesus was fully alive. And so if I'm going to be like Christ, I'm going to be fully alive. And tasting with you guys you made a comment a minute ago from Romans 3.23, you know, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, you referred to. You thank, know, you, thank, for, thank you for giving me that Bible reference, Pastor. There you go, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I knew it was in there somewhere. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> it's in there somewhere. It's somewhere there. But you know, we approach that verse even in a moralistic sense, uh-huh. and appropriately. Yeah. But we say, okay, for all of sin because we fall short of the glory of God. We haven't obtained that standard Uh and that defines our sin. Yes, that's true. Mm. But that's also a statement of the tragedy of fallen humanity. Mm -hmm. What is the greatest consequence of my rebelliousness before God? The notions that I have, God, I can be fulfilled without you, is that I fall short. I miss out on the glory of God. So my sin is falling short. And so that is a statement of tragic consequence. Yeah. That, you know, one of my favorite books is C.S. Lewis's The Weight of Glory, where he starts delving into that. It's really just a short address that he made in a sermon one time. But it's that, is God glorified when we're together? Yes. Are we tasting his glory when we're together? Yes. And so, so I love that. Just a thought off the side since you brought it up. That's another book, Matt. (laughs) So Matt, earlier you had mentioned that younger generations are leaving because they're not seeing life, but yet they want it. And we've kind of laid out four churches really to reach that younger generation by way, truth, and life. Mm -hmm. And you've done so with your boys. I mean, I'll see pictures of you out on a hunting trip with them. And, you know, after a day of, you know, successful or unsuccessful hunting, a picture of all four of you. Yeah, it's usually unsuccessful. I'm... (laughs) All, all animals love when I go hunting because <laughs> they're going to live to see another day. <laughs> How do pastors, elders within church kind of start to reach out to those younger generations and start to bring them into the fold by showing them life? Gosh, that's a great question. I think it's letting us paying attention to that ping in their own heart, you know, eternity is in every human heart and letting them be a part of the dialogue and speak in to us. I don't know that you can, I said this one time in an interview podcast with Summit Ministries actually, and it was just, and I've thought about it a lot since, could we on the vibrancy orthodoxy continuum, just generalization admittedly, but is it possible the older generation is far more passionate about orthodoxy? And one of the great concerns of the older generation is the lack of orthodoxy or concern for orthodoxy that they see in the younger generation. Whereas the younger generation is into vibrancy and they'll make the mistake of saying, I don't care about orthodoxy, I just want vibrancy and not seeing that the two go hand in hand. Could they teach us vibrancy while we teach them orthodoxy? But that question, Steve, I think is at the epicenter of the hope of the church. Mm. I love that the younger generation is calling our bluff and it scares the crap out of the older generation. But they're saying, if 
until I see vibrancy in your life, I'm done listening to your orthodoxy. But the brass tacks of how does that happen, you can't program it. I think it's got to be something organic. And how does that look organically? I mean, when you say it, it's, it's us having those times of community and inviting other people in and, yeah. and honoring questions. But man, we've got, I mean, that, it's a crisis right now in the millennial. And right. of course, millennial is anybody up to 40 now. And, but saying, what is it about our lack of vibrancy that is jettisoning generation? But in the midst of that mess is the soil that I think is really fertile for the seeds of the whole gospel. I don't say full gospel just because that's been cordoned off to a right. particular denominational tradition. Mm-hmm. But I think that that whole concept of as we're looking at life within a church is way truth and life evaluated. And I mean, what do you guys think in terms I mean, of, I, you know, I've been really encouraged and you've been, you go to the Wednesday down at Paul Felitas's place where now we're having multi-generations showing up. And I tell you, it's a posture and a position, right? In that as an older generational set, I'm 55. I have to come in and submit myself to learn and not judge the younger generation coming in and to learn from them and to be open to having them come in and embracing them as fellow journeyers in the road, right? They come in, and it's beautiful to watch because these 20-somethings coming in, they're coming in to learn, and their posture is to learn and grow as well, non-judgmentally, you know? And so we're seeing this nexus of submission to one another, which is godly mm-hmm. <laughs> and biblical, and trying to really understand and figure it out, yeah. you know? But it's creating that space that it's okay to have different thoughts and expressions and understandings. You know, this whole social justice, the creation care versus creation wars, which is mainly my generational speak, sort of bombastic kind of statements. Yeah, you cul- know? Culture war, culture, culture war, culture war, culture care. Uh-huh. Culture yep. war uh-huh. versus culture care. And really saying, what if we're wrong? Maybe we don't have it. And if we look at the fruit of it, it yeah. doesn't really show the fruit of the spirit in many ways. Yeah. So... Yes. So how do we align to what God wants and to learn from one another as we move forward as well in this journey that we call walking with Jesus? Yeah. In the multi-generational, boy, this whole notion of speaking to the younger generation that you're the future church or whatever, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's nonsense. Mm. They're the church. They are the church. It's as much the church as we are. And us engaging with humility. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. I think I a think, lot of what we're dealing with right now is because we got off track. We got out of balance in the orthodoxy vibrancy. And as a result, we're paying the tuition for ouch. that now. Ouch. And what would have happened in some of the hot button issues 25 years ago if we had been more in balance? Because there is a crisis of truth in our culture. But there's the so what? Jesus says, you will know the truth and the truth will enable you to be right and arrogant and so no, no, the truth is it should enable you to be free. Free. Yeah. So I'd want to encourage just, you know, from a Holy Smokes perspective that, you know, invite your sons to Holy Smokes, mm-hmm. invite that young guy at church that doesn't show up to church all that times, you know, every Sunday, reach out to them yeah. and say, Hey, you know, I got a bunch of guys to get together and I don't know where you stand on cigars or scotch or whatever, but you don't have to smoke or drink, but come yep. and hang out with us, yep. you know? And let's learn from each other. Let's grow and let's understand one another. And 
I think you'll begin to see just the fruit of it. And we're beginning to see fruit of that in our lives. I mean, we become more like Jesus, I think, as image bearers when we have that position of humility in growing in that and being not so doctrinaire, so to speak, yeah. in what we believe. But maybe yeah. we should all be focusing on what we hope for. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not compromising on the doctrine. No. It's going deep with that. That's right. But as Amir Slavol talks about, let's go to the implications of our orthodoxy, our right belief. And it's not right belief for the sake of right belief. It's right belief for the sake of life in his name. Well, not only your books. I hope your book, Life with a Capital L. And what's your website at Thrive? MattHerd.org. MattHerd.org. Yeah. Okay. And they can order your book on there. But then... It, it, or LifeWithACapitalL.com. That's another one. What's that again? LifeWithACapitalL.com. LifeWithACapitalL.com would be great. We'll have, but, we'll and have I make sure and keep notes. those up to date at least every two years. I try to update okay. my website. <laughs> awesome. So well, Steve will help me with There you that. go. And also what we love is maybe in the subscripts, we could actually find some of these books and some of these stories that individuals can read as well. Like you mentioned Miroslav and you know the whole culture care stuff. I mean, I think as an older generational set, which is predominant within the Holy Smokes community, we need to embrace that, understand that, figure that out, and really be set free yeah. in some ways as well in those beautiful works as I have and through your, you know, your love and mentorship and friendship. So Steve, over to you. All right. Matt Hurd. Thanks for being on the Holy Smokes podcast. Let's get to rapid Thank fire you, questions. Oh, here we right. go. Rapid fire. Hey everyone, before we get to Matt's rapid fire segment, I want to talk about one of my favorite apps on my phone. Blinkist. Blinkist is a book summary subscription that has more than 2,500 titles in their archives. Blinkist distills the key thoughts and points into easily digestible 15-minute reads. In 2018, I read Abundance by Peter Diamandis on Blinkist and was so blown away that I ordered the full book from my public library. Then I bought it from my own personal library. With others like Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life, I was really quite fine with only the Blinkist version. You can read in their beautifully designed mobile app at their website, export to your Kindle, or listen to the audio version on the go. What I really like to do is listen while I read along right before I go to sleep. I fell in love with this service in late 2018 and have been turning friends onto them ever since. You as a listener have our word that any products and services that we advertise on this show, we personally use and are not just fans, but raving fans. Blinkist is in that category. Try it with a free seven-day free trial. And if you use our affiliate link, that's in the show notes. Or you can go to holysmokes.club slash blink. It's an easy way to help support all the work that Carl, Kay, myself, and my team put in to keeping this show going. So please saving hours and hours by reading a well-written summary of some of the top books out there sounds like something you'd want to try free for seven days click that affiliate link at holysmokes.club slash blank now on to matt's rapid fire segment rapid fire Cigars or pipe? Cigars, because I'm lazy. <laughs> but I love pipes. But yeah, it's just, man, oh man. It takes forever to get the pipe going. Yeah. Cigar, you, you cut it, you score it, and you're in business. 
Favorite cigar? Oh, most guys who spoke with me, they know I'm a Padron guy. So probably, I mean, this Oliva is phenomenal. I'm a big Nicaraguan guy, but I'd say Padron 1964 anniversary edition. I mean, I've never had a bad one. Most expensive cigar you've ever smoked? A Bejique, yeah. And it was a gift that I savored. Was it worth it? Because somebody else paid for it, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Your best dollar for dollar cigar? I would say the series cigars with Padron, you know, they're thousand series, the three, four, five thousand series, just the taste, the draw, the balance there. Although I did just, you know, I live most of the time in Orlando and Corona. They have three Corona cigar bores in Orlando, one South Sand Lake, one downtown that we've talked about, and then up north in Lake Mary. But one of the girls at Corona was wanting, so she turned me on to, it's the, um, I think it's JFR, but Lunatic, and it was six bucks. But then I also found, so this past Saturday, we had Christmas as a family, so we all congregated here, and I got some eight by 80 Lunatics. <laughs> Biggest honking cigar. I mean, kind of had to have arm support. But we, <laughs> we turned on the playoff game, that nail biter that wasn't a nail biter. It's like a three and a half hour cigar. Yeah. It was awesome. So, your go to place to get smokes? Corona. That's the benefit of being on Orlando because, I mean, I used to order a lot online, but Corona, their volume and their selection. No need to go anywhere else. Favorite liquid pairing with your smoke? Mm. You know, I love Islay scotches, you know, Log, Lafroig, but I'm a big bourbon guy right now with cigars, like an Angel's Envy or Woodford Reserve. But a great port, yeah. a tawny port, more than a ruby port. That's actually, I think, historically the classic cigar beverage. Now, Kay mentioned earlier you were a level two sommelier. Mm-hmm. Rumor, rumor has that. Rumor has that. How'd you get into that? There was an economic motivation. I was wanting to figure out how do I find really good wines that don't break the budget. But as I got into it, Kay mentioned this. So I'm both right and left brained. So mm-hmm. wine is, and cigars as well, uh, but wine is both art and science. It's both. So to understand wine and engage with it, you can't just engage with it on the science part on the mind part, nor can you engage with it on the heart part. And so one thing led to another, and we love hospitality is a big gift. And there's that Bad Bats Feast aspect of sitting down to a wedding at Cana. Yeah. And all right, you know, God's given us food, not just as manna, but the taste, the smells, the textures. How does that dance with what we're drinking? And then you have that combination. So a great steak's one thing, a great Bordeaux is another, but you get the right pairing between those or a Syrah. Some magic can happen and all of a sudden it can become a worship experience. Most memorable cigar experience. Wow, that's a good one. I would say in recent memory, so last spring, my son, Stephen, graduated from Whitworth University, double major in business and theology, <laughs> which is yeah. related to all that we're talking about. Yeah. 
But before he dove into the corporate world, he wanted to spend a year, to give a year of his life from a generosity standpoint to an orphanage down in Bolivia. And the person who founded it was a graduate of Whitworth that he had met, and she had started this orphanage for these kids that had been abandoned. And she got married a Bolivian down there, and so he was a male presence in this orphanage. These kids just hanging around him. But, so he's going to do that for a year. So last January, or actually last Christmas, we were talking. He says, Dad, because we're big outdoors people, he says, I want to climb in Patagonia and Mount Fitzroy. Mm. Everybody's familiar with Mount Fitzroy, whether they know it or not, because you know the Patagonia logo mm-hmm. is actually the silhouette of Mount Fitzroy. And so I cast in on some frequent flyer mind. He said, Dad, I'd like you to come down and let's climb and hike together. So every night was capped off with some great smokes, but there was one where it was a, about a 14-hour day climb-wise, hike-wise. And we were about eight hours into it and had a flask, a couple of cigar tubes, and he and I sat down, and we're right, we're at a glacier, on the shore of a glacier. Mount Fitzroy was right behind, and took our boots off, and sat there, and we just savored the moment. And then hiked, you know, after great bourbon and a cigar, then hiked six hours back but it was worth it. I, I wouldn't recommend stopping in the middle of a marathon to have a cigar, but it worked at that time. <laughs> As a guy who loves to hike 14ers here in Colorado, yep. for those that don't live here, they're the mountains that are above 14,000 feet. We've got 56 of them approximately, depending on how you count them. That sounds wonderful. Yeah. And as a guy that wants to go hike some of those mountains in other continents, nothing like Everest, but just those ones that you're able to go up and come back down safely and yeah, that sounds magical. And we were there, and so it wasn't this temptation to say, okay, we've had some trail mix, energy bar, it's time to go. Once we lit up, again, that imposed meditation and community that we're there. Let's soak it in. Marvel or DC? Marvel. And that's a lot of that is because I grew up more DC, but the boys, some great movie experiences, most of them are Marvel. Star Wars. Or, or, or Chick comics. You know what? Remember those, Steve? Chick tracks. The Chick tracks. Okay, sorry. I digress. Uh, Star Wars or Star Trek? Hmm. Because of my sons, Star Wars. But I would say what Ralph has done with Ralph Winter with Star Trek. What was the second one? Wrath of Khan. The Wrath of Khan. I mean, that's a... It's an all-time yeah, there's fantastic a, one. The Star Wars brand has been diluted a little bit because they've had some hit or misses there. So, But still, I would go with Star Wars. Favorite food? Mm. An ideal meal and challenge also from a pairing standpoint would be a steak and lobster meal. And so it's a big challenge to have one wine that would pair with both of those. But why limit yourself to one wine? Amen. (laughs) Dogs, cats, neither or both? Dogs. Oh, yeah. Cats are not true pets. They are. uh, (laughs) Vermin. Yeah, they. No, they're not vermin. They just have an agenda. 
And it's an agenda that supersedes humans. And dogs realize where they are. They are here for the humans. I'm not sure cats believe that. I have a, I don't remember where I heard this. It was probably a comic who said that when a dog looks at you, they say, wow, they feed me. They take care of me. They clean up after me. <laughs> they must be a god. A cat looks at you and says, wow, they feed me. They clean up after me. They take care of me. I must be a god. <laughs> exactly. That's the personality difference between Boom. dogs and cats. That's it. Nickname growing up or in college? Big Red. Big Red, which you are a redhead. Yeah, I played basketball back at Bill Walton head. The big redhead had paved the way. I didn't play like him, but at least I had red hair and was tall. What's or another one that I was given down in Ecuador is hiking through the jungle with the Waldani tribe. We used to be the Alcas. The, you know, yes. so this was the Nate Saint and so forth. Yes. So we're there and we flew in from Quito to the mission airfield. And it was a rough ride. I had three other brothers with me and I was the smallest. I'm six five. I'm not a small guy, six five. And the guy looking at us said, hey, 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 and I didn't even think about it. So from a weight standpoint, we had to get rid of everything except the minimal stuff. But then we were stranded in the mission station there for a couple of days because of weather. But finally we got to where we're going and these guys from the tribe met us at this little airstrip. It was nothing but cleared off jungle grass. We're hiking along and the lead guy his name's Minkaye. He was the guy that speared Nate Saint. And Steve Saint is the guy that set the strip up. Steve and Minkaye have become great friends. So Minkaye, he doesn't know how old he is, but he took my pack. And so we're hiking through and all of a sudden they're laughing, you know, in their own language. And so I asked Minkai, so what are they laughing? And he's laughing as well. And he says, uh, they've given you a nickname. I said, oh, really? What, what is it? And so people that don't know me, I'm 6'5 and have red hair. So that's the background of this. So he gives the name. And I said, what's that translate? And he says, giant matchstick. <laughs> 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 You're long and white and you have a red top. So uh, giant matchstick. Well, Favorite book not titled the Holy Bible. Gosh. I'm a big reader, that's hard. I would go back to our conversation if I can only, yeah, C.S. Lewis is the weight of glory. Mm. It's not long, and, but it's filled with a lot of the stuff that we're talking about. If you were arrested with no explanation, what would your friends and family assume you had done? <laughs> uh, I'm sure it would have to do with driving a little bit faster than what the suggested postings might be. Yeah. All right, final two questions. If you were to have a holy smoke with any three people throughout history, living or deceased, who would they be? Can't name Jesus just because so many people would name Jesus. Obviously, top of the list, other than Steve uh, Grison. How did you come up with a poster that quickly to hold it up and say, me, me? Uh, (laughs) C.S. Lewis, but you know, he was a pipe guy, wasn't So I would probably... Boy, goodness, you've got, um, I'll name a few and then narrow it to three. You know, Ernest Hemingway was not, he did smoke cigars, and I'd love a conversation with him over a cigar. Churchill, obviously, 
I mean, who else would have somebody call them in the middle at 2 a.m. during one of the raids in London? You guys know this, where the guy at the Dunhill shop where he kept his cigars called him at 2 a.m. to assure him that his stash was safe. Um, Mark Twain would also be someone. He would smoke, they said, between 20 and 40 cigars a day. Morgan Freeman would be somebody that I would love to sit down. Tom Watson, big cigar guy, golfer. But I've got to narrow it to three. So Churchill, Twain, gosh, the Spurgeon's there. And Steve uh, Grison. Um, <laughs> really, if Steve Grison, that's really all that I care about. He's worth three, three guys right there. Uh, that's that great. All right, final question. If we were to meet one year from today, and I got a bottle of wine that you handpicked as just worthy of absolute celebration, what are we celebrating one year from today? Wine or champagne? Or champagne, if you have a great champagne. I usually say champagne, but knowing you're a sommelier... Well, it could be. You know, people talk about what's the occasion that we're celebrating. Actually, you can be open a bottle of champagne and then celebrate that moment instead of trying to have an excuse to open a bottle of champagne. But um, <laughs> I would say, guys, if, if a year from today we saw more thaw in this log jam of orthodoxy at the expense of vibrancy, if we'd all witnessed an Aslan is definitely on the move and we could all sit around and point to, so it wouldn't be just me, we would all say, you know what, it's happening. The gospel, once again, is taking front and center in the passion of the church and celebrate the progress on the path. I mean, in one sense, every day, it's late afternoon here, but today progress has been made. The glory of the Lord is covering the earth a little bit more today as the waters cover the sea than it was yesterday. And we've been a part of that. Matt Hurd, you are one of my favorite people in this group. I love you, my man, and thanks for being on. Oh, it has been an honor. Thank you, guys. Love you, and I'm grateful to be on the path with you. 